Today's horror story is written by Bleep Bloop 1990. I found a strange book in a bookstore in Maine. Nobody should read it. I think that would be a good title. No, you. It has a definite hook. Maybe a little clickbaity, sure. But I don't want to draw on the discerning types, now do I? I want to entice the rubes, the gullible, the people who are so desperate to believe that there is more to the universe than the four corners of their sad little lives that they will swallow the bait whole before they realize they're choking on it. Maybe I should back up. Today, I've decided to do two things I've never done before. Start keeping a diary and violate Title 18 U.S. Code Section 1343 by committing interstate wire fraud. About the former, I know very little. About the latter, I know far more than I would care to. In my professional life, I practice white-collar defense for a national law firm. Let's just say it's a firm at the tippy-top of the AM Law 100 list, if anyone, i.e. nobody besides other depressed lawyers with undiagnosed personality disorders, cares to know. What this means in practice is that I spend a lot of time standing in front of slack-jawed jurors explaining how my client definitely did not break any laws, or indeed do anything wrong. If you're wondering, the first part is often true, but only because they helped write the laws, while the second is always a lie. You may at this point be starting to already feel less warm toward me, hypothetical reader, but please believe me, whatever contempt you feel pales in comparison to how much I loathe myself. Like a candle doth pale before the light of the sun. It may help to also know that in the halcyon days of my youth, when I still both dreamed of pursuing a career that made the world better and had time to read for pleasure, I read about a small fish called the cleaner wrasse. This fish has evolved to clean the teeth of other, larger predator fish. So you see, when I stand before a federal judge in West Virginia and whittle away at the fines imposed against the pharmaceutical companies who pump the state citizens full of opiates in its rivers with pollutants, I am merely serving a role in the long and honorable evolutionary niche of assisting those with more power than you in return for the favor of it being someone else who gets chomped. It was in fact on just such a work trip that I found the book which inspired me to both keep a diary and commit interstate fraud. We flew into what I suppose, if inclined to be charitable, you could call an airport located in Bangor, Maine, and then were driven by a chartered car the rest of the interminable route to Skowhegan. This town is located on the western fringes of the state, where, in a manner that seems little changed through the centuries, the fragile string of populated settlements peters out, and the people are swallowed up by a forest primeval that ranges to the Canadian border and beyond. What level of neurosis caused me to feel the need to explain myself to my own diary, I don't want to examine. But if you balk at my purple prose, dear imaginary reader, just accept that it is nearly impossible to be in a place as wild as western Maine and not feel a certain urge to give in to romanticism and try your hand at writing like some half-baked Thoreau or Emerson. I mean, they couldn't be bothered to name the whole state. Just chucked in the towel filling the map with a bunch of letters and numbers. 
If you, like me, had also only been to Maine to visit popular tourist destinations on the southern coast, you might be surprised to realize that Maine is not all charming lighthouses and rocky coasts, but also has its fair share, more than its fair share, of Rust Belt shitholes. Skowhegan had once been a relatively prosperous blue-collar mill town at one point, but the drive-in now took us by yards choked with weeds and filled with rusted-out cars and appliances. Once sturdy working-class houses slowly sliding into disrepair, and surly-faced natives who glowered from frayed lawn chairs as our car sped by. The town consisted mainly of stout 20th-century brick businesses and old mill buildings, sitting empty or hastily refurbished to accommodate trendy retail shops selling souvenirs and overpriced local goods. A hulking abandoned paper mill sat perched over the falls in the middle of the town like some decaying bird of prey, dead at its roost. It was in fact because of those abandoned mills and factories that we had traveled to such a place. Some local citizens of the town had gotten the bright idea that the companies had used up the resources and the people of the town and then bailed out with golden parachutes when the jobs went overseas should be held accountable. Our job was to convince the local courts, through the shock and awe deployment of legal resources and pure sophistry, that they were wrong. After the hotel clerk, who I believe sported more neck tattoos than functional teeth, checked us in, I was feeling restless, so I walked out into the fading evening to wander the streets. The windows facing west clung to the retreating sun, the last streaks of orange lingering in the dark panes of glass. I stopped before a small bookstore, tucked away in the basement of a nondescript brick building that had once been a bank and paused outside. I could hear the roar of the falls nearby, the feel of the thrum of their power through the soles of my feet. For a moment, it felt like the hum was coming from inside the bookstore, sinking into the bones and fillings of my teeth like the hum of a jet engine powering up almost as if there was some ancient power source just beginning to awake among the dusty stacks within. The moment passed, and I was again standing in front of an ordinary door. Jet light can be a real bitch, I thought, shaking my head and opened the door. I pushed my way in and was greeted by the ding of a small bell on the door. It continued to ring for a beat longer than felt normal, its cheery metal tune seeming to grow louder and more ominous in the small confined space. That feeling of being watched by some unknown and unknowable entity was back. The shopkeeper, an old and worn-down-looking man who bore a distinct resemblance to a reanimated corpse, barely looked up at me. The shop was in the basement of the building, and the small windows set low into the ground were dusty, dimming the retreating light that reflected through them and painting the space in an eerie glow intermixed with thickening shadows. There were no other customers in the shop. I browsed the rare book section absentmindedly. I didn't really have any intention of buying anything. Under the constant strain of billable hours and late nights editing litigation filings, I had long ago relinquished my previous love of reading. The books were old, dusty, and boring looking. 19th century tomes on farming techniques, outdated compilations of statistics and maps, and poetry and prose. Books by long-dead local authors I'd never heard of filled out the shelves. I was turning to go when something familiar caught my eye. I saw the name Frederick Nietzsche 
emblazoned in gold lettering on the side of a slim gray book. The title, Gottlieger Weinsen, meant little to me, but I paused and slid the book from the shelf without thinking. It felt heavy in my hand, as if the dense and penetrable German philosophy it was likely filled with had imprinted its character on the book itself. Aside from the author name and title, the book contained no other information. No discernible copyright page, no date, no publisher. It didn't even have page numbers from what I could tell. The first page was crudely affixed to the binding as if done by an amateur, and consisted of about half a page of sloppy, childlike handwriting. The rest of the book was also handwritten, but in a neat, elegant style. As it was all in German, it was indecipherable to me but the brittle yellowed pages suggest that the book was quite old. Without giving much thought, I walked with the book up to the checkout and waited as the old man rang me up, moving with the simple clumsy slowness of someone firmly in the grips of late-stage arthritis. Walking back to the hotel, darkness slowly swallowing up the town around me, I wondered at my abrupt decision to buy this strange book. It wasn't likely worth the $25 I paid for it, but I guess I suppose there might be an off chance it was some type of first edition or rare copy. Back at the hotel, I placed the book on the bedside drawer, where it looked out of place next to my laptop, portable printer, and legal papers that I should have been reviewing. I paced the floor of the hotel room, trying to go over the arguments we would make tomorrow, while the book sat there, mute and unmoving, but somehow continually drawing my gaze and breaking my focus like some kind of black hole of attention. It wasn't so much that buying a random philosophy book written in German was by itself troubling behavior, but when placed in the context of a number of other out-of-character impulse acts I had engaged in recently, it did make me wonder if I should be concerned about my mental health. There was the time I walked into a grocery store back in New York to buy eggs and beer and found myself instead hastily stuffing random candy bars in my pockets and walking out without paying, the back of my neck tingling as I strode through the security barriers. Then there was the incident at the client meeting with Citigroup, where, when reaching out to shake one of the shareholders' hand, I had been momentarily seized by an irreversible impulse to punch him in the gut. Fortunately, whoever must have been asleep at the wheel in the old frontal cortex woke up in time to avert the impulsive action, turning what would have been a hearty slug into something that could be reasonably passed off as a mistake. But it had been a close thing. I remembered reading somewhere about a doctor who had started engaging in similar, impulsive, even criminal behavior, and it was only after his arrest that someone thought to run a CAT scan and found a massive tumor pressing on the part of his brain modulating impulses. Could something similar be happening to me, I wondered, running my hand over my scalp as if it would be possible to feel the telltale presence of a malignant tumor disrupting my normal, i.e. borderline sociopathy but within the bounds of social acceptability, Mental functioning. I managed to push these concerns aside long enough to focus on the hearing. We won, justice did not, and bid adieu to the strange, sad landscape of Western Maine. It was only when unpacking back in New York and taking the slim gray volume out of my bag when I remembered my impulsive purchase. The funny thing was, in Googling the bibliography of Friedrich Nietzsche, I was unable to locate any works entitled Gottlicher Weinsen. I did learn that the title of the book roughly translated to Divine Madness, 
which, based on what I half-remembered from some undergrad philosophy classes, sounded vaguely like something Nietzsche would write to me. In either further clear proof of deteriorating mental processes, or a wise choice to test the value of a potentially remuneratory purchase. On a rare day off from the grind of the lit department, I dug out the business card of a rare books expert our office had retained in a forgery trial, and paid him a visit in his uptown office. He was an eccentric little man, but happened to be fluent in German, and agreed to investigate the authenticity of the book I had found. I may have implied, but carefully, never deliberately expressed, that the work again was for the firm and would result in similar exorbitant payment. But if he was not careful to get all terms in writing before agreeing to perform a service, then was that my problem? As far as I was concerned, he'd agreed to do a favor for a curious friend, even if he might be surprised to learn so after the services were rendered. It was when I returned a few days later to ask him what his investigation had uncovered that I truly began to be interested in this little book I'd bought. Now, this man fit the image you might have in your mind of a rare books expert. So well, I thought, that he must be on some level deliberately cultivating a certain effect to bolster his image among potential clients. I could only respect such a shameless tactic, which is partially why I recommended our firm retain him. Game respects game. This effect, whether real or sham, meant that his office had always been slightly untidy, with reams of paper and obscure-looking books scattered throughout. But when I returned to see if I'd bought a golden goose or some magic beans, it was in total chaos. Books were upended and open over every conceivable surface, carpeting the floor in a wash of white paper. The furniture was overturned and covered in takeout containers and notebooks full of illegible writing. Strange words and symbols were written on the walls and windows and the blinds were closed, with a single bare bulb illuminating the phrase Gallagher Vansen scrawled in red pen over and over on the heavy desk that sat in the center of the room. The man was entirely undone. He was speaking only in German and his breath was coming out in short, ragged gasps. I quickly realized that attempting to speak to him was fruitless and let him cower in the corner while I sorted through the notes scattered over his desk in an attempt to figure out what had happened. The notes, which began in the crisp and organized handwriting I remembered from our forgery trial, quickly began to lose coherence and descended into illegibility. What little I could make out seemed to be saying something about a hidden truth and the old ones who, and here he was quite clear, must not ever be awoken. From the portion of his nose that remained legible, I was able to see that his impression was that the aged appearance of the book was either genuine or the result of an extremely well-done fake. The title matches an apocryphal lost work of Nietzsche, alleged to be written before he lost his sanity in turn in 1889. The first page did not match any known handwritten samples and appeared to consist of a warning not to read the book. The rest of the book is either a remarkably well-done forgery or is the genuine handwriting of Frederick Nietzsche. So, here I am, sitting in my apartment with a glass of scotch, the book, and the notes pilfered from the office, weighing my options. Before you think I'm totally heartless, I did place a call to the mental health services and informed him about our poor, formerly sane books expert. Given the trouble he seems to have gone through on my behalf, if he ever gets it together enough to inquire about it, I'll probably even pay him. Now, do I think I uncovered, in Skohegan, Maine of all places, 
a lost work of Friedrich Nietzsche that has the power to render insane any person who reads it. No, of course not. The most likely explanation is that our little book's expert friend was on the edge of a breakdown and encountering this book either coincided with a break with sanity or was enough to put a teetering man over the edge. The question is what to do with the information I have. Whatever this book is, it is at least a reasonably believable fraud. I'm relatively certain that taking this book to another expert to receive a second opinion would reveal the likely mundane truth behind the whole thing. However, with what I have now, would it not be reasonable to claim I genuinely believe in the authenticity of this book? The nervous breakdown of the rare books expert is sure to soon be a matter of public record and is just the type of thing to stir up a bidding war among the credulous. I have some contacts that could serve as third-party marketers to sell us on the web, and I think with what I have, I could create some real interest. This, at last, brings us to the violation of Title 18 U.S. Code Section 1343 and Commission of Interstate Wire Fraud. If whoever ends up buying this book ends up finding out they've been swindled, and if they turn to the authorities to try and recover their misspent fortune, and if the authorities take this seriously and try to uncover the identity of the seller, and if they are able to penetrate the web of third-party foreign entities set up for the sale, then I think, given the circumstances, I will still have plenty of reasonable defense that I genuinely believed in the authenticity of the book and did not, in fact, commit fraud. So, why the diary? Why create maybe the only thing that could, as Exhibit A in some hypothetical trial, definitively prove I knowingly, or with willful disregard for the truth, made a fraudulent representation that led to a sale using interstate communications? That section would probably be really pounded on by the prosecution at sentencing. Your Honor, not only did the defendant clearly know what he was doing, he knew the very definition of the law he was attempting to break. Etc, etc. I guess the answer is, I don't know, just feel like it. I've been feeling dead inside, maybe since I first started this job, maybe earlier. Definitely since my first big win defending a mining company in a wrongful death lawsuit that led to the death of several miners in Pennsylvania. I guess having a challenge with real tangible stakes is an opportunity to feel something. However risable it may be, and... I am aware it's plenty risable. This goofy scheme to hawk a counterfeit Nietzsche book on the dark web might be the only thing that's going to keep me getting out of bed for the next few days. I guess that's enough diarying for one day. Time to hit the hay so I can get up early and respond to emails. July 18th, 2022. Wow, so entering the date in my diary gives me real old-timey officer writing to his loved one about the war vibes. My dearest Penelope, it has been two months since my last letter. Though the distance between us be great, I feel as close to you as the day I left the farm. The great struggle to dupe some gullible internet random continues. I fear it will never end. My only constant in this arduous war is the thought of you. I pray that I may have the strength to see this through. I pray that you will never see such horrors as I have. Anyway, so the game is very well afoot. 
my dear diary chum. I have decided that it may be wise to obtain a translation of this book to aid it in selling in the American market, and also for my own curiosity. Through some intermediaries, I have contracted it out to a reputable translating firm. They have received a scanned copy of the book and should return an English translation via PDF soon with a printed and typed copy to follow. I guess I am following through on this diary thing. I mostly expected to wake up today, realize how dumb this whole thing is, and delete it. But instead, I doubled down. I whipped up a little script so that if I don't log in for seven days, this document will automatically post to random sites on the web. Why? Fucked if I know. Just to add to the sense of the stakes, I guess. July 19th, 2022. I billed 12 hours today. Jesus help me, I need a drink. July 20th, 2022. Bill 10 hours today. No word from the translating firm. I've set up some preliminary third-party accounts to be ready to go when I start marketing this thing. July 20th, 2022. Jesus Christ, am I just fucking really boring? After that first spurt, am I so brain dead at the end of the day that I can't think of anything to write down other than the amount of hours I build. I suppose I could add what I ate and the weather. Jesus. July 23rd, 2022. I think we might need to revisit that tumor in my brain that is impeding mental processes theory. I'm a little freaked out right now. We'll try to write more tomorrow. July 24th, 2022. I got an email on the account I set up to communicate with the translation firm. I'm trying to remain calm and assess this objectively, but whoever was charged with translating the copy of the book seems to have also lost their mind. The email I got just has a string of German words in the subject line that Google Translate can't seem to make much sense of. From what I can tell, our old friend's hidden truth and the old ones might make an appearance. There was nothing in the body of the email, but there was an attachment that seems to be an unfinished translation of the text. From scanning the document quickly, it looks like the translator got about 30 pages in before the quality of the work starts to get wonky. By page 40 or so, it's all just gibberish. Every now and again, I'll see a legible phrase or two, something about a hidden order to the universe and the reality behind the reality. Honestly, the experience of trying to make sense of it is reminiscent of a lot of very forgetful conversations I've had with people who think being high is, by itself, an interesting personality trait. Okay, so, Mr. Sarcastic, why haven't you read the legible translated part yet? Well, dear diary, I guess because it's just you and me and the blinking cursor here, I can tell you. I'm too scared to read it. I mean, can you blame me? I try to be a person who relies on evidence and reason. A horoscope and a bio is an instant swipe left for me, even if they're really hot. That's the level of dedication I give to rationality. But you have to admit, you would be pretty freaked out at this point too. I think I just need to process for a little while. July 25th, 2022. I am going to do it. I'm going to read it this weekend. July 26, 2022. It's Friday at 11.30pm. 
I've built 13 hours already today and I'm still working. I hope reading this thing does kill me. July 27th, 2022. So I read the first page, the intro page, the one that was in different handwriting. It has a note affixed by the translator. It notes that due to the poor quality of the handwriting and the crude German used, it's difficult to provide an accurate translation, but a rough approximation was attempted. The note seems to have been written by a German immigrant with poor spelling skills. He refers to the book as Bose's book, or evil book, that killed his wife. He warns anyone reading it not to read further, and says he would destroy the book, but he's too afraid. The devil lives in the book and he's too scared to damage it for fear the devil would escape. He apologizes. So, I mean, that is spooky, but also maybe just the ramblings of a dumb, barely literate 19th century immigrant who has a spurious understanding of cause and effect. Or the product of a skillful forger who happened to land in the lap of two highly suggestible translators in a row. Or maybe I'm being pranked by someone at the firm and they're trying to freak me out. I think I need to keep reading. I feel if I give up, if I admit I'm too afraid to read a damn book, there'll be no recovering from that. July 28th, 2022. I'm about 10 pages in. I'm pausing to assess my mental health before continuing. And no, since you ask, by doing that, I'm not admitting that I believe this might be a magic book just seems prudent. This book might have some strange effects on those highly susceptible to paranoia or insanity and hello, gestures vaguely at whole diaries so far. Clearly, I'm not wholly mentally stable at this point. So far, I still feel pretty normal. I mean, dead inside, but that is normal for me. It starts off strong, a real banger of an opening line. I'll reproduce it here. And do you want to know what the world is to me? Shall I show it to you in a mirror? I mean, other than the questionable choice to begin a book with and a strong opener, 9 out of 10. It continues on in this vein. Honestly, it's a bit tedious. A lot about the hidden nature of reality, the cosmic lie we live in, blah, blah, blah. How we are like small water bugs skimming over the fabric of reality unaware of the monsters that lurk beneath the unimaginably immense darkness. Okay, that last one was a tiny bit spooky, but so far I feel fine. I will tackle more tomorrow if the god of billable hours will, in his mercy, grant me a spare minute. July 29th, 2022. I read about 10 more pages today. I'm thinking the translator might have already started to degrade somewhat at this point there are a lot of random gibberish phrases strewn throughout and words that are left untranslated. Anyways, I still feel mostly fine. I think being on edge about this whole thing has started to bring out the OCD in me. I know, I know, it's a real mental illness, don't appropriate it, blah blah blah. Because I've cleaned my apartment like five times, but I just can't get the feeling right. Everything seems dirty or off-kilter somehow. July 30th, 2021. I read up to where it becomes illegible. No breakdown yet. I think the stress is starting to wear on me though. I had to leave work early. Kept making mistakes and couldn't deal with all the noise and how the lines in the office look. Cleaning my apartment again, then may revisit the idea of getting this translated. 
June 31st, 2022. Well, I could not get anything done in the book project today because my apartment is full of these disgusting little bugs that keep crawling out of every corner. I called maintenance, but they are apparently playing hardball, pretending there is no infestation. They really do not know who they are fucking with. Ever heard of a warrant of habitability, motherfucker? Know that New York has treble damages for renters who prevail in lawsuits? August 1st, 2022. The bugs are disgusting. I can literally hear them buzzing and chewing as I'm writing. I can't tell where they're coming from, but bigger and bigger ones are getting through. I'm drafting a complaint as we speak. Also, I'm adding a claim related to the architecture of this place. I don't know how I never noticed it, but clearly it was a negligent construction. The lines of this place are falling apart and showing the night sky outside. August 2nd, 2020, 2020. Hard day, all day, no play. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Ripped asunder and all the foul things of the earth spilled out. Fetid scales and a thousand eyes. The old ones knew. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Unspeakable darkness. Thank you for listening. You can handle another horror story, right?